Welcome to The Driven Entrepreneur, where we sit down with visionaries, trailblazers, and entrepreneurs and discover why and how they do what they do. We'll get the backstory, plus plenty of life and business lessons along the way. Here's your host, Matt Browning. Broadcasting from the Leadership Academy Studios, aka my new basement. Welcome to The Driven Entrepreneur. You know what we are. It's the go-to plan for coaches, authors, speakers, and entrepreneurs of all kinds to start, grow, and profit a business that you love. Hey, it's Matt Browning with you, of course, again, and we are continuing on with an interview series. So if you've been listening to the last few episodes, um, if you've missed any, you can go back and find them anywhere where you get podcasts. They'll be on demand, no paywall or anything, always free for you. You can go find them at mattbrowningpodcast.com and listen to some of our our interviews as of late, but we're, we're going to continue. We just had a, a doctor on last week. We're going to have another doctor on this week, but we have a different take. This is not going to be uh, convicting you for donuts and healthy living. This is going to actually be a whole different take all about uh, generosity. My guest this week is Dr. Katrina Wynn. She's an award-winning bird certified, board certified pediatric gastroenterologist. If it's easy for me to say, she's going to fix me on this one. She's also the founder of a nonprofit to fight childhood obesity and the author of the new book, Live to Give. Dr. Katrina has an incredible story of overcoming and coming to this country as a, as a tiny baby. And I want to get into all that and more uh, and, and talking really about how to have a generous heart, whether or not your pocketbook aligns. Dr. Katrina, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing well. It's an honor to be here. Don't say that. It's an honor for me to be with you. You are taking time out of a very busy schedule to be with us today. And the thing that I was really excited about having you on and talking about is this idea of you coming from the background you came from and really how much you tout generosity and how that builds your life and everything. I know, catch us up a bit. I know I know your story, but everyone here hasn't heard it. Tell us the story of you coming to the States? Because so I know this I was, is kind of where it really starts, isn't it? Yes, yes. So um, April 30th, 1975 was the fall of Saigon and the end of the Vietnam War. Um, I was born in February 1974. So I was 14 months old when my family and I escaped communist Vietnam on my dad's fishing boat. And he j basically just hoped that if we headed out to sea, that we would be rescued by merchant ships. And uh, in the process of that travel, of escaping communism and finding freedom in America, I died, I nearly died twice. Once was in the transfer from a flat, from the fishing boat onto a flat and from a flat to a merchant ship and was fell into the ocean. And the other time was in a refugee camp in Guam when I was really sick to the point where my parents were looking for a burial site for me. So with that background and growing up and hearing stories like that as a refugee, I knew that God was giving me second chances in my life and I had to use that second chance to help other people. That's what drives me to serve people to the best of my ability. That's incredible. I, I, I've heard your story before. You spoke at our conference and I heard your story from stage and it's still, just stops me in my tracks every time. How old were you when you, I guess, 
realized that you got a second chance? Is this something that you grew up hearing, like ever since you remember your mom saying things like that? Or is this something that kind of happened later in life, you started putting it together that, wait a second, my life matters? Because usually if we have like a near-death experience or a major health crisis later in life, that's the wake-up call. But you're having a wake-up call at, you know, one, two years old. Well, um, I think that throughout, I would say, junior high, high school, and even early parts of college, um, many relatives would visit our family during special occasions like weddings and holidays. And I'm one of 10 kids. <clears throat> so whenever my parents would remind them who I was, all I would hear is, oh, is that the girl that nearly died? Wow. And that's, that's the story I would hear about myself. But I never understood the, the extent and the, the gravity of the situation my parents were facing when I was so ill in the refugee camp. Um, it wasn't until much later in medical school that I reflected back on all these times that I was given second chances in my life and my career. And once I started to write my book, that became more obvious because of sharing the times I've been given opportunities to help people and why I do it. You, again, you have an interesting story, of course, as, as a refugee coming to a new country and eventually making it here with your family, having, you know, obviously very little. I've, again, heard the details of, of what your mother has to do on the fishing boat. Uh, it's incredible. But you land here with very, very little. And when did your family, quote unquote, make it? Did they start to become successful, have money as you're growing up? Or did you grow up in a new country now where your parents struggled quite a bit and you know there wasn't enough and then you had to find a new way? Talk to us a little bit about the financial side uh, of growing up as you're coming to this world of generosity. I recall most of my, um, I would say most of my teenage years, uh, we always felt that we got what we needed, but we never got what we wanted. And that was what my parents instilled in us, so that we're not going to get the same things other kids would want. Holidays would be different, but that we would make it through. And my parents valued education, so they focused on letting us achieve and go higher and higher in education. And so they never wanted us to work. My parents depended on the government, you know, to get us through. You said your parents and never wanted you to work? Because this is your, as a teenagers or as you're growing up? As a older. teenager. Sure. So um, in the summer, um, when I was 14, I went through a job training program after finishing um, junior high. And so at that point, my parents were willing to have us work only in the summer. But it wasn't something like, oh, you know, don't focus on school or quit school and get a job and provide for the family, because they wanted us to focus on the long term, the future, earning an education and pursuing a career, not so much about providing for themselves. And they would find a way to make it happen. So I think when I look back, I think I'm grateful for the fact that they valued education so much, despite the fact that neither of my parents received formal education and my mom didn't even know how to read and write in her own language. Wow. And here you are going to medical school. Absolutely. Yep. So, so when you, by the time you get to medical school, what is your perspective on, uh, I guess, generosity 
are you already like living into this way? Is this how you've been growing up and what you've been doing? Or did you have a kind of a, a moment where things changed or you, you realize that later on? When I started medical school, I already had a vision of one day when I was done with medical school, I wanted to have a nonprofit. I didn't really know what that nonprofit would be, but I wanted to give back in some way. Um, and I felt like in the process of training at some point that I would be given some guidance on where the help was needed and how I can make a difference. But certainly in my early 20s, I was already thinking about giving back. But already kind of having this life of, how important is it to have a life while you're chasing success or while you're growing in your success, however you want to call it? How important is it to have a life that you keep in mind the gratitude, the generosity, while you're moving towards where you want to go, right? I think there's a lot of people that, especially in the entrepreneur space, it's easy to fall in that trap of once I, then I, right? So once I get this money, then I'll start tithing. Once I sell my business, then I can start going to the lake, whatever it is, you know, it's once I, then I, you definitely have a take that is both and. Can you talk to me a bit about that? How important is that? And how do you do it? I think that um, even before I started medical school, I looked at ways to give as not like I knew probably even when I'm successful that I wouldn't be able to give as much as other people with my treasures. But giving my time was the most important. So finding ways to volunteer for causes that you're passionate about. And that's how you can actually make a difference, even when you have you don't have money, even as a student. Um, and you have many talents, even before you're a successful doctor, you have other talents that you have to look within and say, what talents do I have that I can give before I make a ton of money? Um, being able to think about generosity makes you a more compassionate person and compassion is very important in healthcare. So I think anyone out there, especially working in healthcare, um, should learn ways to give because it builds your character and builds compassion. What advice do you have for parents? You know, I'm always thinking I have an 11 year old son as we record this now. Um, I'm always thinking as an entrepreneur parent, I want to instill character traits and, you know, teach and raise my kid up. And one of the things is, hey, you know, good work ethic and generosity and everything else. What advice do you have for parents to instill generosity early on, regardless of uh, the family's, I guess, financial stature, right? No matter where you are right now, how can you help to instill this in your kids? So I think that finding ways that families can work together every year to identify charitable events and causes where your children can be part of that. So um, I'll give some examples. Uh, here in Rockford, Illinois, for several years, I partnered with uh, a few businesses in town and we worked on what's called uh, blessing bags for the homeless. So every holiday, I would invite um, families in the community and kids to come out and put together blessing bags. Think of things that people who are homeless would need, uh, whether it's um, you know uh, food or just socks or clothing or just toiletries. And we'd come together and have children along with their parents put those bags together. Um, there's other people that would work with us to feed the homeless in the soup kitchen. So being able to demonstrate and uh, you know, be, be part of the model of generosity, showing your kids and having them participate in events like that is one way to start. 
Love that. So get the get the kids involved. But and here's the thing that we I don't want anyone to miss this from what you just said. To get the kids involved in events and charitable giving and serving and time, you have to already be doing that. Mm-hmm. It's not something you can, you know, just like anything else with children, right? You can't say, hey, you should brush your teeth every night and then you don't brush your teeth every night. You should do this, but you don't really do that. So if you're going to teach generosity to the kids, which I can't imagine a parent thinking, I don't want that for my child, mm-hmm. you have to already be bringing that in in your life. What are some ways, I know one of the big things about your Live to Give, uh, your new book, it's out on Amazon right now, so just a little plug for you. It's an inspirational memoir about freedom, faith, and selflessness. It's actually quite a good read, uh, and I appreciate you sharing this with us. One of the things that you're really big on is giving and being generous before you're ready to, quote unquote, uh, before you have things. What are some ways that if if I'm sitting here thinking, you know, I do want to be generous. I know it breeds success. I know it's going to help my attitude. I know that it's going to make the world a better place. I know all that, but I just can't make ends meet for myself right now. Um, while I'm working on raising my own income and taking care of my own family, what are some ways that I can still be generous? Um, some tips for that. So as I mentioned earlier, um, most of us who think about generosity, we think about money and treasures. But I think that all of us have the same amount of time every day. And it's how we use our time to look at our time. It's not just our our own time, the time to help other people. So identify causes where you could spend maybe a few hours a week and volunteer. I think that's one way that does not affect your treasures and your ability to provide for your own family. Just I love your, your, your treasures. Your, yeah. <laughs> I'm imagining <laughs> my crowns and my rubies and everything. <laughs> when you say treasures, this is what, assets? Assets, money, your income. Yeah, okay. You know, things that <laughs> you could liquidate, you know, your jewelry, all, anything that are possessions, right? You can, that it could be valuable. I just love that. I love that word treasures, right? Sharing. Because, I mean, treasures are what you're treasuring in your life. Mm-hmm. And I do find that, that fascinating. I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was Billy Graham who, who first said, you know, you want to find out where a man's heart is, look in his bank account. And I could be totally off. You can uh, find me on social at Matt Browning and, and give me all the hate tweets and tell me why I'm wrong. Uh, but I think that's where it was. But I love, you know, if I look in, in at your bank statement, I can see where your heart lies. Um, mm-hmm. What are you spending your money on? Or in your case, what are you spending your treasures on? What, mm-hmm. And you can actually see what you are treasuring itself. So get some time to do that. Um, really love that. What are, what are some of the things that I guess, what do you see? Let's flip it around for a sec. When someone doesn't have a generous heart, or maybe they want to, but they're not acting generously, you know, it seems like it's fine. I get the spiritual principle of giving is better than receiving, but in a way, generosity is this thing that's not, it's not like marketing dollars, where if I spend money on ads, I get a new client, right? So I, I, I know we don't think of it as I'm going to tithe or give to this charity, and then I know I'll receive tenfold somewhere else. It's not that literal, right? It's not tit for tat. Um, what are some ways that you've seen generosity showing up in your own life? I guess I want to talk about the reward side of it. And I know giving should be its own reward, but I also know like it it turns up, it yields a harvest in the giver's life. It's good to be giving. I know God wants us to be giving because it's good for us. It's like, I want my child to be giving because it's good for him. What are some ways that you've maybe seen it show up and get rewarded? Um, not 
directly, maybe indirectly in your own life or other people's lives? Yes. Um, I think one of the, the biggest ways that I've seen it come in my life is addressing the, the uh, epidemic of burnout and burnout that, uh, you know, prevention of that in healthcare, which is huge. Uh, especially in 2020, when we were all going through the pandemic and there are 43% of uh, doctors and nurses changed jobs in tw since 2020. What percentage? 43%. So that's the Nearly latest statistic. half of doctors. And nurses. And nurses. The medical profession have changed out of the industry or just changed jobs, careers, or workplace? Uh, jobs, careers, or workplace in the wow. way that they work. You know, That's they went incredible. from a salary job, they changed their job in order to adapt to different things like uh, their kids having uh, Zoom classes now, being home. Sure. And so they went from two people working to having at least one at home to run the uh, Zoom classes for the kids. Uh, so that a lot of that is also work-life balance, uh, finding time with your family and adapting to the changes. Some of it was the healthcare industry and the focus on certain specialties, the um, effect on ele elective procedures and surgeries that generally increase revenue in the hospital, but those had to be stopped. Right, and I so those are all factors that contributed to the change in the way physicians and nurses were practicing. Uh, but certainly burnout, you know, the, the best way to combat burnout is you have to find a way to find joy and Generosity is one way to increase joy, and joy is what helps you with burnout. Let's talk about that then. So increasing joy, I think that's something that when I'm getting burned out, that is absolutely one of the states that I am missing. It's hard to find joy when I'm stressed, when I'm overwhelmed, when I have deadlines, when something's not working, when bills aren't being met, when money's too tight. What's an example of something I could do I don't know, I guess right in the middle of it, like what are some things that you, you give advice to do if I'm feeling burned out, feeling stressed out? How do I, how do I, can I like flipping, I want to flip it in the moment. You know, I don't want to go, well, I guess I should write a check to this organization. I guess I should go to the soup kitchen on Thursday. What's something I can do like right now from the couch or from my desk if I'm feeling burned out? I hang up this call, what can we do? So um, I've, in the middle of you know, 2020, for instance, myself and many other people were experiencing those symptoms of burnout. We didn't recognize it right away. Uh, but what we did was we looked at the circumstances of our patients and our staff, and we talked to them. We talked to them about what they were going through. And by um, instead of looking inward in our own struggles, we looked outward and we looked at the challenges other people were facing looked at how we can help our staff and our patients. Uh, an example would be that with my nonprofit, um, I was able to every Saturday work out with kids and their parents. And through that, hmm. I understood more of the challenges that the parents of kids were going through, which was much different than what I was going through as a physician, you know, debating about how to make my practice work, you know, how to, um, balance, you know, the checkbook, uh, how, whether I'm going to change my job or stay in the same job versus what they were dealing with is how to make sure their kids were getting education, how to provide for their family because one person lost a job. So when you look outward instead of inward, you actually help 
uh, with the burnout symptoms you may be experiencing because you're seeing that your struggle is not as bad as what someone else is going through. Yeah, I really love that. That is awesome. Hey, since we're talking about, I guess, the, the medical industry a little bit, where do you see... I don't think the, I was going to ask, where, where do you see the future of this? But that's a very broad question. I don't feel like we can keep this sustained stress level that has been happening, not just for the professionals in your industry, but also for the rest of us as well. Um, what would you hope that everybody would begin to do or change coming now a couple years you know, into and out of? I've heard a lot of analogies and I think my favorite one post pandemic analogy is, you know, like we were running from a bear and our DNA, right. We're designed to run away from the danger and we run from the bear and we go into the cave and it's a short, so adrenaline and stress responses are designed as a short stint, right. To help us survive. We weren't designed to have the bear move in with us and live with us and hang out with us and have this low level prolonged stress for two, three years. What's something that you hope that people can begin to do again, or what should we really do uh, to take control of this and to de-stress our lives? You know, I feel like I've gotten used to this level of stress and it's not necessarily healthy. What advice do you have for me, I guess, is what I'm asking, <laughs> um, to take control back and really de-stress in the long term? I think um, what I've learned in the last two years is both for children and adults, uh, mental health has been a rising problem. You know, um, isolation, uh, those are things that we're doing, we've been doing a lot in the last two years. And one thing that would be helpful is to gradually uh, reimmerse ourselves in group settings where we're interacting and we're talking about our stress and not just keeping it to ourselves. Um, when I work with my nonprofit and every Saturday, I gather with children and parents. It's not just about exercising and fighting obesity. It's about being a support group to discuss the challenges that we face in achieving a healthier lifestyle, not just physical health, but also mental health. Um, mental health is something that seems to, you know, in years past, it's such a stigma. And I think that it shouldn't be a stigma. It should be something that we should be able to talk about. And, and I always tell my patients, it's normal to have stress and anxiety. But when you allow that to take over your life, your daily life, your plans, your career, your family, that's when it's dangerous. So I think that's important. And I encourage kids and parents to slowly, you know, I'm here to help them um, as a nonprofit. And I encourage other providers to do the same for their kids and their patients. Love that. Well, and let's talk about that for a second. So you have your nonprofit's fighting childhood obesity. And I know you've been, uh, you've been on television quite a bit promoting these, these races that you do. How did that all get started? And tell us the story of that. So in, uh, when I finished my pediatric GI fellowship in 2009, I was in Augusta, Georgia, and I saw a lot of patients who struggle with obesity related health problems like fatty liver disease and type two diabetes. And also the um, struggle with obesity affected other health problems like asthma and acid reflux, uh, for example. Um, when I was in training, I was always told if you spend time counseling your patients on healthy eating, diet, exercise, you know, eventually every three months and over time, they're going to achieve their goals. But once I went into practice, I, I didn't see that. I could bring a patient back three to six months and things weren't changing. 
kids would gain weight, the health problems got worse. So over time, I sat down many parents and I asked them, you know, seeing that these changes and the counseling I provided, uh, it's not equating to changes. And I wanted to find out why. Mm -hmm. So through that, I, I was able to identify many barriers that prevented the changes from happening. Um, and when I looked at uh, research literature on childhood obesity at the time, and even nowadays, uh, children with obesity are studied, meaning what happens in the long term if they if children are struggling with obesity. So they study things like health outcomes with regard to heart disease and liver disease and diabetes, but there is very little with intervention and prevention. It's like data and statistics. So that's when I took the idea of what if I took it away from the hospital setting and the clinic setting? And instead of telling the children, you have, you struggle with obesity and these are your health problems. Let's weigh you every three months. Let's do some blood tests. Why don't I address the barriers for them struggling with achieving a healthy lifestyle? So I took that into the community and applied for a grant through the American Academy of Pediatrics and proposed an idea that would not be unique to Augusta, Georgia, that could be done anywhere in any city, not specific to any hospital. And I got community partners involved in addressing opportunities to meal prep, to teach nutrition lessons, to provide free gym space, to provide a fitness instructor, and doing everything, parent and child, doctor, nurses, dietitians, medical students, that's where the idea started. And I launched my first program there in um, 2012 and had a first 5K there called Fight Obesity, Walk With Me. And after that, I came to Rockford, Illinois in June of 2013, and I was asked to do the same thing here. So I decided if I can do it in Georgia and I can do it in Illinois, I can form a nonprofit. That's kind of where things started. That's outstanding. Very cool. <laughs> and then now you're doing all sorts of things between the, the 5Ks and you're doing the education. I think really, really neat. And so, Dr. Katrina, this has been awesome and also inspirational, too. Like, I, I'm already sitting here going, okay, what, what do I want to do? Be generous today to relieve my stress by being generous. How can I involve my son and my whole family in right in the generosity? So thank you for the inspiration. You're awesome. Um, your book, her, her new book is Live to Give. It's an amazing inspirational memoir. Where can we find your book and tell us anything you want about it? This is your time to plug your book because it's an awesome book. People should get it. So the book was published by Hilton Publishing Company. So the website for Hilton Publishing Company has the book available and then Amazon has my book available as well. Um, one of my inspirations for writing the book is not only detailing my journey as a refugee and inspiring people that the American dream is alive and well, and anybody um, who comes in America to America as a refugee, opportunities are abound and we just work hard to achieve it. I detail my medical journey uh, to becoming a physician. And my whole goal of writing the book is also to inspire people to be more selfless. Uh, because we all have our blessings of time, talent, and treasure. And if we use, use it well, we can leave a legacy that is lasting of generosity. So thank so you good. very much. Very good. So the book's on Amazon, Live to Give. Dr. Katrina Wynn, thank you so much for coming on. You've been outstanding, as I knew you would. And I really appreciate you. My pleasure. All right, guys, that's the show for this week. Well, again, uh, my thanks to our guest, Dr. Katrina Wynn. Um, 
really inspirational person and check out again her new book is live to give it's on amazon right now wherever you get books you can grab live to give um, and inspire your heart with more generosity so that you create the success and the future and the legacy that you really desire outstanding idea uh, make sure you follow dr katrina win uh, and follow me of course now dr katrina you can find her on at md katrina on instagram and linkedin Follow me at Matt Browning, B-R-A-U-N-I-N-G, at Instagram, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, all that stuff. It's, it's at Matt Browning. And I will see you next week with another driven entrepreneur. Get out there this weekend. You know what you got to do. Stay driven. All right. I'll see you. Bye-bye.